0: really believe in my heart that making patriarchy which is an invisible system um, something I referred to as the ghost in the machine um, visible so that we can intercept this when we see it happening so that we can raise our kids to be gender literate not gender neutral because they're not living in a world that's gender neutral they're living in patriarchy so prepare them for that be an ally and a safe place for them in that but also help them develop the resilience to resist that socialisation.
1: Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Jess Hill is an investigative journalist. During her career, she has worked for the ABC's Background Briefing Program and as Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail. In 2015, she was commissioned to write a piece about domestic violence for the Monthly and found herself hooked by the topic. Four years later, she published See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control, and Domestic Abuse. Jess is the recipient of two Walkley Awards and the Stella Prize. She currently works as the inaugural Journalist in Residence at the University of Technology, Sydney. Jess, welcome to the Good Life Podcast.
0: Thank you, Andrew.
1: Tell us about your path to journalism. Did you enjoy writing as a child? Did you always
0: want to be a journalist? Uh, I think I, I wanted to be a writer from an early age, definitely. Um, but it was a very circuitous path. Um, I I actually wanted to start a magazine from the time that I was about 15 that would be an intelligent alternative to women's magazines and I was very serious about it. I went to other schools to recruit young writers and um, and I I mean I had absolutely no funds whatsoever to do this um, and so when I left school um, I just wasn't that fussed about going to uni because I was determined to start this magazine and, um, and I ended up getting a publishing partner and we were kind of all on the way to doing that and then a very long and detailed story um, sort of ensued, but, but shorthand, sort of tragedy struck, and that didn't happen, unfortunately. Um, so then I went into advertising uh, for a couple of years and found that was like not really my bag, uh, to put it lightly. Um was
1: that just to pay the bills or was there a period where you actually thought you might make it in uh, in advertising
0: oh you know what you what it's like when you're 19 and you're just like where am i going to make it you know what what can i make it so that i can live um outside of my family home <laughs> was, yeah, so yeah. yes it was really just to pay the bills initially i was just yeah poor and then it was um and then it was like well maybe I was doing stuff for um, UNICEF and, you know, I thought maybe I can I could do something in this. I went for a, a couple of copywriter jobs, but my heart was never in it. I don't even watch commercial TV. So, you know, it just, I, they could see me coming a mile away. Um, so, yeah, so I left there. But it was a great experience to to understand what life looks like and what the world looks like through that lens. And it's certainly been really important for me um, as a journalist to have that understanding. Um and then I became a travel writer um, and that was just, I, I was basically unemployed after <laughs> leaving advertising um, and so I was just hitting refresh on Seek like every two minutes and a job came up to write travel advertorials. Um, for people who don't know what that is, it's sort of like a combination of advertising and editorial. So it was just basically promotions for, for you know, tourism and uh, apparently I was the first one to apply for the job and that's a big part of the reason why I got it. So <laughs> Um, because I just wasn't really qualified otherwise um and then that morphed into travel writing and I and I actually ridiculously at 23 24 was traveling to Paris to review their hotels um I was you know it was it was actually ridiculous the kind of perks that I was getting as a young woman um and then I was on the way back from, this is disgusting by the way, I was on the way back from Club Med in Mauritius, flying first class, having just sort of, I've been sent there to write about Club Med um, and gee, it's nice. Um, And it's, you know, and I I would have really liked to have just sat by the pool and had cocktails. But the first sign I saw when I got to Mauritius was a sign about AIDS. And, you know, this is an island that has the highest density of five-star resorts in the world, you know, um, and, and there's, there's not a lot else going on now economically apart from telecommunications. And so it was really, it just struck me immediately. I can't just be here and write about Club Med. So I started like taking the bus to the local shelter. And then, you know, I was looking at what what happened historically here. I was talking to the Club Med staff about that. And I thought I'm actually not cut out just like to be a travel writer. Some people are, and it obviously was not my path. So when I was on this first class flight back from Mauritius, I thought, how am I going to get into journalism? I I need a way in because I don't have a uni degree. I haven't been a cadet. So now I'm like a senior, I'm practically geriatric, you know, in terms of starting out in journalism. I'm like 25 by the stage. And and so I thought, well, there's an election coming up. So this was 2007. There's an election coming up in the States. Maybe I could just get a blog Um, get someone to pay me some pittance and then just claim it on a tax deduction. Um, And that way I might be able to cover my expenses and that, and then I'll have sort of created a portfolio. So new Matilda agreed to sort of pay me, I think 200 bucks a blog. I, um, I went with my partner. We traveled across the States um, for the, you know, the what ended up being the Obama um, election and, uh, and we filed every three days Um, and, then I think I got back from that still unemployed in much greater debt because the tax deduction did not quite work how I planned. And then I found a, a friend said, oh, there's a transcription job going at BBC Radio Current Affairs. And I'm like, I'm in, please, please just find me a way in. I type super fast and I will get up at any hour to do this. <laughs> and so I started doing transcribing for AM, actually getting up at 4.30 in the morning and, um, and then just had, you know, sickening initiative um, where I was just wanted to be a, a researcher on those programs so badly that I worked my guts out to prove that I could be. And within a few months, I did get hired as a researcher. And then it kind of went from there.
1: You are uh, painting a picture of journalism that seems a bit, a bit like uh, acting, you know, one of these professions where there's just so many talented people throwing themselves at it. Uh, what sort of advice out of your own experience do you now give to journalism students at at UTS who are looking to break into a a very competitive industry?
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I actually was an actor before that and gave up on that too, given that that was just too disappointing um, (laughs) to go to audition after audition. Um, So generally when I'm speaking to young aspiring journalists, um, I say like we're actually I mean, as yes, we are living in a time when journalism jobs are dwindling, but as opposed to the time we were living in prior, which apparently was the golden age, um, you actually do now have access to to creating your own work and publishing your own work, even if that's just on medium. Um, or on any other site um, that's, you know, you don't need to get published by The Guardian to build a portfolio. And so my advice is just to start writing, um, start producing, um, create your own podcast if you want, because if you want to have the upper hand on, on other aspiring journalists, um, you know, really what people are looking for when they're employing you is like, how eager are you? And, and what would your work look like? And you're not going to hand in uni assessments to um to the ABC when you go for a job there. You know they don't really care whether you graduated with distinction. Um, what they want to know is what are you going to do in a newsroom? How hungry are you? How uh, how much initiative can you show? And so that's that's what what I say. And yeah, it is really really tricky. Um, um, uh, and even and much trickier than when I started. Um, I got probably one of the last. Permanent jobs at the ABC, and then bloody quit that to go to the Middle East. So I'm obviously bananas. Um, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah. So I, that's how I. That's what I say to young people. Do you like writing,
1: or do you find it, uh, it it's painful at times? I just need to write,
0: but I don't like mm. it. <laughs> I feel tortured by it. <laughs> I, I am not one of those writers that springs to the computer and, and rubs my hands together and goes, oh, perfect day. Um, I, you know, I feel a great um, sense of responsibility to, to do it right and to help people to understand things that are that are difficult to understand. Um and, and where there's a lot of technical jargon or, or barriers to people really getting a clear visceral sense um, of what goes on in certain industries or in you know, um, certain areas of life. So I think the pressure I put on myself is part of the reason why I don't like writing because my internal critic is quite enlarged and they are talking to me a lot when I'm at the keyboard. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, I, I think I'm, to be honest, I've actually, I have liked writing better since I had a kid and I think that's because I don't get in my own way as much because I just don't have as much time and I think there's a certain amount of confidence that's come now finally from what am I I'm 37 now so I've been doing this for over 10 years and I feel like finally I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing sometimes
1: yeah I mean I find the challenge with writing is that you're standards go up as your abilities go up. So I would find it very easy now to write as badly as I did 20 years ago. Yeah, right. uh, but I, but I, I now look at my sentences with a more critical eye. I'm more aware of the cliches that are uh, sort of, uh, you know, like the proverbial fart in the middle of the aria. Uh, and, and just the, the, the challenge of really saying something in, in as pithy a way as possible uh, means yeah. that the job of writing doesn't get easier in the way that I'd, I'd once hoped it might.
0: Mm, I, I heard Susan Orlean say the same thing, you know. Um, uh, she said that, like, every book that she writes, she goes into the same pit of despair about 30% in. Um, and, you know, here's someone who's, like, obviously an acclaimed writer, has been more renowned recently for her drunken tweeting, but, but an acclaimed writer, and she you know, the fact that she still feels that existential crisis, I actually think that probably, and I don't mean to, um, I don't mean to say that writers who don't have this are not good writers, but personally for me, I feel like unless I have that existential crisis where I dig deeper than I knew was even possible, my writing only ever kind of reaches the level of like acceptable and, and, you know, functional, whereas it's that extra level you go to because you're so down on yourself um, that you reach into. And, um, and that's, for me, where some of the most magical writing has happened. Um, but it's I think you definitely, most writers I talk to, pay a price for their writing.
1: Yeah, I've always envied the uh, people like Ernest Hemingway and Christopher Hitchens who had that ability to uh, write while, while completely drunk Uh, and yet turn out wonderful sentences. You know, I feel as though it requires absolutely all of my energy at the best time of day in order to craft something that will be worth anyone else reading.
0: But Ernest uh, Hemingway did do many, many drafts. So don't be fooled by his swagger because I think, and, and let's face it, he did end up going pretty um, into some pretty strange spaces with conspiracy theories. So, But I've got to say he, he would draft and draft and draft and draft. And look, maybe the drinking helped. I don't know. I haven't tried that yet. Yes,
1: there's the lovely John Kenneth Galbraith line that it is on the thirtieth draft that finally I introduced the note of spontaneity for which I'm so well known. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so you, uh, you you're you're best known now for uh, for this uh, extraordinary book, uh, which uh, you know really is uh, the the seminal piece of writing on. Family violence in Australia uh, on a, on a kind of broad scale, spanning uh, the stories, the policy, uh, the the intertwining links with with family law, uh, and your your path into writing about. Uh, um, Family violence is uh, is an unusual one. It seems to uh, link back to the extraordinary Feek brothers, uh, Nick getting you to write for the monthly, and then Chris getting you to turn that into a, into a book. Um, is is that is that fair, or was there some sort of seeds of an interest in uh, in, in family violence that came out of your time in the Middle East, uh, which WHO tells us has one of the highest family violence rates in the world?
0: Yeah, look, you know, I think were I to have been in the Middle East um after Me Too, that that may have been more of a part of my experience. But because I was in the Middle East directly um during and after the Arab uprisings, that was that was sort of much more the frame. Um so sort of the attempts at, at reforming democracy rather than I mean certainly looked at that other elements there, but 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 that sort of more social and familial element wasn't as stark to me. Um, I think that so, yes, it was definitely I mean, Nick Fyke was the, def- the first um, person to ask me to write about this um, after the uh, Victorian government called for the Royal Commission into Family Violence. Um, And, of course, after the year of, well, the first year of incredible advocacy that Rosie Batty did, uh, building on those decades of advocacy that had been done before. Um, And I, um, when I, yeah, when I first received that commission, I mean, firstly, when you get a commission from the editor of the Monthly, most of the time you say yes, um, (laughs) even if you're not quite sure how you're going to do it. Um, And I think that's how I felt was wow, this is a massive topic. I felt I had absolutely no grasp on it whatsoever, um, but was very determined that I would develop that grasp and do it as well as I possibly could. Um, And I guess that, you know, to to begin with, I didn't even know how I would write. I didn't know how there would be enough in this topic to fill 4,500 words, uh, which is, Hilarious, given that I submitted a book that was 150,000 words long and even that had been chopped back. Um, so, um, so at that stage, uh, it was about six or seven weeks at the end of 2014, beginning 2015, that I spent researching this and speaking to as many people, um, frontline workers as I could. And um, honestly, what they revealed to me was that here was something that was at the heart of our society of the, the decay and corrosion in our society that was affecting every part of social life um, that I had no understanding of and I did not even know how to ask the right questions. And, um, and, and the questions I did not even know how to ask in the beginning were like, why does he do it? Like, you know, and it took three weeks for that question to even occur to me. And when I, when I realized through their help that this is not just an issue of, um, name calling, physical assault, etc., but it's an issue of power and control. I think that's where I became obsessed by it because I started to see that wow, the power and control that is being um, that people are being subjected to in these intimate relationships, there's a mirroring of that um in the systems they then go to for protection. Um, we're talking about power and control generally in our society when we talk about domestic abuse and as that started to become clear to me I was like oh this is gigantic this is so massive and it has so many facets um, and I was working at the ABC sort of as a contractor at the time and working for background briefing and every time you know they want you to work on different stories, right? So at first I was like, okay, I just want to do one more. I want to do something about perpetrators I'm off the back of the monthly piece. And then I was like, oh, I've got this phone call. I want to do something about family law. And it was clear to me by the end of that, it's like, I'm not going to drop this. Like this has now got me. And um, but even still at the end of that year and after six months of working in the family law space, which was just such a secret underground um, of scandal, to be honest, that that has shocked me to the core. Um, I felt exhausted. I felt like my marriage was hanging on by a thread, to be quite honest, Um, because of how I had just gone into total tunnel vision about this issue. I'd felt an enormous responsibility to be the person who told this story right so that we could protect like these particular children who were in these horribly dangerous situations it got very personal and uh and i got to the end of that year thinking i actually need to go and work and walk in the wilderness um somewhere in tasmania will do and i'll just walk for three weeks um and just get this out of my system and i don't know if i can come back to it um and then black ink came to me i think they and they might have a different history of this in my mind they had approached me. Now it wasn't Chris that approached me, it was actually Aviva Tuffield, who was um who was a a publisher there. And she had said, like, you could really convert this into a book. And um, and I'd sort of resisted, and then I thought, oh man, someone's gotta do this. And when you say that, that my book is a seminal book, I really appreciate that. I wanted to write a seminal text, but I have to say it's particularly easy when there have been almost no other books written about this subject in Australia. Um Aside from books that dealt with it um, that have come out in in the last few years, but not for a a general audience, not for something that was really marketed to that general audience. So I just felt like when is the next time that a publisher is going to ask a journalist to write about this as a phenomenon for the general public to understand, um, and I felt a huge responsibility to say yes, even though many parts of my body were saying no. <laughs> so so that's how that's how I ended up saying yes and I said yes to six months and I actually sat with Aviva at coffee and said, um, I'm not one of these self-indulgent authors who needs years to write a book. I'm a journalist. I understand deadlines. <laughs> So, yeah, that, that didn't happen and the deadline just kept on moving out and out and out as I was like, no, 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 I need another six months because I've really got to get across this and that ended up being three and a half years, uh, which I did not budget for and was very taxing. Um, but, but, yeah, that it was necessary because not only of my own understanding um, matured so much in that time, I matured and the world matured because in 2015 there was no Me Too um, you know, I think from memory, Black Lives Matter was either just starting, um, but certainly in the years since then, the world has changed. And I went from a position where I didn't even know if I could use the word patriarchy in a book without coming across as some sort of, you know, radical man-hater, um, to it being absolutely critical to the work to do a chapter on patriarchy. And that changed because of the Me Too movement. And it changed because the world was ready for this change and was ready to start making invisible systems visible. So you
1: talk about, you've got a couple of core concepts in the book. One is that you talk about domestic abuse rather than family violence or, or the more extreme term, domestic terrorism. Uh, what made you choose the term domestic abuse?
0: Yeah, well, it really, um, was really spurred on by the work of Yasmin Khan um, in Queensland who wrote an article for Women's Agenda. She's a, she um, voluntarily works with women from the subcontinent, primarily who are victims of domestic abuse. And, um, and she wrote this really compelling piece in Women's Agenda saying that like so many of the women who come to her will t- detail the worst stories of control and surveillance and assault, uh, not assault, abuse... But they'll say that it's not domestic violence because he never hit me. Um, and, and so she really wanted to change the term because at the moment, what she said, domestic violence, no matter how we've tried to redefine that term and expand it out to include psychological, emotional, spiritual, etc., cetera, um, people still hear violence. And, they, and we just have not been able to shift that paradigm in people's heads. And violence is the sticking point. And if we're going to look at this as an entire system that is not just about assault, even though that is a very important part where that happens, um, but is about what happens inside the relationship and outside the relationship through the systems abuse that can follow, we need to talk about abuse. And I was nervous about changing it. it was very close to publication. We had to redesign the cover. We had to like replace all of the instances in the book. Um, But I did it because it's, I wanted a catch all term that would include all victim survivors who'd been through this. And I could not think of another better way to shorthand it. Um, And I think that it's interesting. It's often the first question people ask because it's the first thing in the book is explaining why I use the term domestic abuse. And it immediately opens up a conversation about how this goes beyond one-off incidents. And that's exactly what I think Yasmin Khan wanted to achieve and it's, and it's what I wanted to achieve by changing that term.
1: You have this notion of uh, coercive control, which you, uh, you explain in some detail. And you say that it often feels like perpetrators are following a playbook. Uh, so common is the, the, the pattern of behavior.
0: Uh, how, how, what does that playbook often look like? So it's basically coercive control yeah, is, the, is the model for understanding what these really predictable patterns sort of look like. And, and what it is is that this is a system of abuse that basically just never switches off, um, that the good times are, are as much a part of the abuse as the bad times. Um, so es- essentially to list it, You're looking at coercive control as dominating um, and and changing the way that their victims think um, by isolating them, micromanaging their behaviour, intimidating and belittling them, withholding resources like money or transportation, abusing children and or pets or threatening to harm kids or pets or threatening to harm themselves um, if, if their partner is to leave, humiliating and degrading them, uh, monitoring their movements, gaslighting them, but, but overall just creating this, this, um, this feeling of confusion, of contradiction and extreme threat where there's this sense of like what people who, um, who study how coercive control is used in cults, they, and, and it is really quite a direct parallel, they talk about thought reform Um, where the person who is subjected to coercive control is essentially being re-socialised into a new kind of logic whereby what they're experiencing, they can't even often articulate it and the majority of victims won't even know that they're being abused until something sort of breaks through. Um, It might be a physical assault. Um, It might be a friend saying something, it might be a stranger or a hospital worker or a hairdresser saying something like, are you safe at home? It could be just something that breaks the spell and they suddenly go, hang on, there's something not right here. Now, inside that feeling of not knowing they're abused, Victims will operate like anyone will in a relationship. They'll be angry at the fact that they feel like their partner is being manipulative or they'll feel like, oh, we've really got to fix these problems. Maybe there's something that I'm doing or maybe I can fix you, you know, and perpetrators will often present themselves and, and will feel, you know, some of them feel genuinely that their partner is the only one who can help them um, and they'll really present that as like, you need to help me, you know, stop doing this. And so, you know, victims will take it on themselves to fix this person. And so all of their attention will be really directed towards what they can do to change themselves or to change their partners. And they, and they cannot often see what is being done to them. Um, and so when you describe coercive control and you, and you tell victim survivors what it looks like and what it feels like, it's like this light bulb moment for them because they're like, I didn't know there was even a term for what I was going through. And the fact that it is this predictable plot line, it's like a way for them just to slot what was otherwise ambiguous, confusing behaviour into these clear techniques and behaviours.
1: Yes, and that notion of, uh, as you quote one psychologist, uh, talking about dependency, debility and dread, uh, that uh, that way in which the threat of violence can be so so effective in uh, in coercing someone, uh, even if actual violence is relatively rare, uh, reminds me of um, Once Were Warriors, where there are a couple of scenes of violence in the movie. Uh, but otherwise all you get is the sound of the wind uh, suggesting that there might be violence and uh, you're sort of, by the end of the movie, the sound of the wind is, is enough to uh, to send a shiver down your spine.
0: Well, that's right, you know, and this is the, the, that's the same. It's a really great way of describing how victim-survivors feel and, you know, one, one eight-year-old um, boy who I call Finley in the book, he said that he used to be able to read his father's face like an algorithm you know he's a gamer and he would be able to see in his father's face slight twitches that would indicate what he was likely to do to his mother that night Um, you know others will talk about we can i can hear in the quality of his of his footstep what kind of mood he's in they become so hyper aware to that that you know as i said in the introduction for the book you know it's almost like animal sensing an an oncoming storm they're so in tune with that person's, um, behaviors and that person's moods. It's like a, an almost umbilical connection. Um, and I think that it's really important to, to point out that in co- some course of control relationships, the violence is extreme and it's sadistic and it's, um, and it's, you know, it can be sometimes almost nonstop, stop um, um, almost daily, you know, but in others, it basically runs the whole spectrum from very extreme violence to none at all. Um, and neither, th- that is all part of the coercive control. It's not that, you know, the non physical stuff is the coercive control and then the physical stuff is assault. It's all part of that system of coercion and control. So let's talk about uh, patriarchy.
1: Uh, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull used to. Uh, give speeches on uh, family violence in which he picked up on an argument made by some prominent feminists that uh, while patriarchy doesn't always lead to violence, all violence starts with disrespect of women. But you don't think that's a complete explanation. Uh, So why?
0: Yeah, so I think that, I mean, he's not wrong to say that, but what I think is really important to understand is that actually if we're going to dig deeper... I think violence really starts with men disrespecting other men and boys disrespecting other boys. And by that, I mean not even consciously necessarily, although that obviously happens, but we're talking about a, when we're talking about patriarchy, we're talking about socialization, talking about the culture that one grows up in. And boys learn from a very early age, pretty much just as language is starting to come in, two or three, what the rules of patriarchy are. And they are taught to them by other boys, sometimes by other girls, sometimes by their parents, sometimes by stories they see on television, that basically the boy's job is to be strong, to be in control, um, to never be a girl. Um, the contempt for girls is really um, put in very early in boys um, and or for girly behaviour. And what is really amazing when you start to understand how patriarchy works and how these messages are conveyed is that basically the way that young boys learn that they must not show vulnerability or to show vulnerability is to, is to be in a dangerous state is not necessarily just through bullying or, um, or violence. It's often through um, the care of a parent or another um, kid basically sending the message, don't do what you're about to do because it will put you in danger. So an example of that is, um, is the family therapist Terry Real. I quote this in the book that, um, that his son um, Alexander, you know, both his sons have been raised in a very gender literate household. Um, Terry Real talks about patriarchy, you know, has done for 20 years plus his son would love to dress up as the good witch. He had tiaras. He had fairy outfits. He was about three years old. And um, and one day he came to the top of the stairs, um, fully decked out in his tiara and fairy outfit. I think he was dressed as the good witch. And, um, and he was, like, ready to sashay down the stairs and be a total hit. You know, that's what he had in his mind. And um, his brother, his older brother and, and his brother's friends were down the bottom And they shot this look up to Alexander, which basically was the transmission of shame. And the look was, you can't do this. Like, you're a boy, you can't do this. And as Terry says, you know, his older son was raised not to bully his younger brother or be mean to him. There was nothing mean in it. It was a message of protection you need to learn that you can no longer do this if you wanna be a real boy. And Alexander turned on his heel, ran back to his room, took off the outfit, never wore any of his dress up outfits again, and then ran downstairs to you know make swords and shields with his older brother. These are what Terry Real talks about as the normal traumatizing moments for boys. They are the moments in which they are really learning that they must carve off that part of themselves that feels so natural and exile it. And the part of them that feels so normal and natural is the part that we ascribe to femininity. And that is vulnerability, compassion, empathy, <laughs> um, doubt, you know, all of these things that we, we ascribe to as feminine values. We teach boys even subconsciously to reject so what are we teaching them? We're teaching them to basically reject women. <laughs> you know, we're teaching them to reject what what we believe and set up women as um as as being defined by, and so we're breeding so early this kind of contempt that boys have to sort of resist this. This is a socialization process. I'm not saying all men have contempt for women, but you need to resist this socialization process to to stop having contempt for girly girlish behaviors or girlish traits. Um, and what you find too often is that there isn't that resistance there and that there's this sense that as they grow older and they get in intimate relationships, I mean, I'm skipping a lot of steps here, but, but essentially they get into these intimate relationships and you can have these boys who have been basically trained how not to be intimate, you know, to, to not be vulnerable, to always be strong and in control, the rest of it, is basically a textbook of how not to be in an intimate relationship. Um, so we are raising our boys in a way that basically pre- prevents them from being good intimate partners. Um, and the ones who succeed are the ones who resist that socialisation. Um, and so you have men who, who go into these relationships and they're suddenly feeling all these things they shouldn't feel, feeling powerless, feeling helpless, feeling like, Oh my God, I can't, I can't imagine if this person were to leave me, what would I be? What if she cheated on me? What if she disrespected me with another man? And this overwhelming sense of vulnerability is exactly what they've been told never to feel. So in these sort of relationships that can end up being abusive or just cold, but especially that where the the, the man becomes abusive, there's like a resentment towards the woman for making them feel like, how dare you make me feel? you know my whole life has been about not feeling you know um and about being in control and now you're threatening that so there's this resentment that starts to build up and and so you know this is all why i really believe in my heart that making patriarchy which is an invisible system um something i referred to as the ghost in the machine um uh, visible so that we can Intercept this when we see it happening so that we can raise our kids to be gender literate and terry real says, you know It's not about saying to your boys. Um, oh, don't worry You can dress up as a fairy and go to school um, You should be able to do whatever you want. Don't listen to them You know, you've got to raise them to realize that okay, you want to dress up as a fairy and go to school Let's talk about the risks of that you want them to be gender literate not gender neutral because they're not living in a world That's gender neutral They're living in patriarchy. So prepare them for that, be an ally and a safe place for them in that, but also help them develop the resilience to resist that socialisation and to understand what what they're being subjected to in all of that messaging um, and that there is actually another way to live.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about your uh, theory of shame when I was reading uh, Douglas Stewart's uh, book, uh, Shuggie Bain, that won the Booker last year. Uh, and that, I mean, there's so much family violence, domestic abuse in, in that in that book, uh, all set in the backdrop of uh, pit closures in uh, Scotland and the, the brutality of uh, of low wage low wage work. Uh, so you know, the, the understanding the social context in which uh, in, in which violence emerges, I think, is uh, is is critical. Uh you're um, you're a bit skeptical about education programs as the 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 primary solution to uh domestic abuse. Uh, why is that?
0: Yeah, I uh, I'm not so much so what yeah, so the, the key word in that is the primary response. Um I think that education programs are absolutely vital. Um and I think the gender equality approach is like no one is going to oppose a gender equality approach. Um and, and looking at that as a, as a way, you know, if we're looking at greater economic independence for women, all these things are absolutely vital um, to combating domestic abuse. Um, however, I think that we've, we've put a lot of eggs into this sort of primary prevention basket. Um, and I think in, in the meantime, in the past 10 years, we haven't done enough to really look at how do we intervene with people who are using violence now? How do we um, how do we achieve greater safety for victims who are experiencing violence now? Um, so I think that the prevention part is very important. I think that when we look at prevention, we need to really grapple with why it is, if we're talking about men's violence against women and kids, obviously there are all sorts of different people who are engaging in this, but that's the predominant and most dangerous form at the moment, um, that, you know, we need to be looking at that when we talk about gender equality and we're moving towards gender equality, that you're also going to get this is just has happened since feminism became a concept, you're going to get backlash and you're gonna get resistance, and you're going to get backlash from the culture doubling down, some men doubling down on their rights to control women. So you see like pickup culture. You see, um, you know, I've even seen evidence of, um, of men who are selling programs, training other men how to conduct thought reform on their girlfriends to control them and isolate them. Um, so you have all this, this stuff going on at the same time. Um, I think that our, our approach to gender equality probably hasn't taken in enough of an idea of how do we also combat backlash? How do we actually include men in this rather than what a lot of men talk to me about, Um, who are really decent guys um, and not perpetrators who say they feel excluded from this conversation. They feel like the bad guy, no matter what they say, they feel like they have no way to talk about this. Um, And I think that, yeah, we just haven't been explicit enough about that. There's also the fact of the Nordic paradox. And I think this talks to that backlash point is that here you have in the countries that have the highest, um, you know, ratings for gender equality you also have incredibly high rates of intimate partner violence, incredibly high rates of sexual violence. Um, So gender equality in and of itself is not a panacea to domestic violence. If we get greater gender equality, if we go up the gender equality index to be number one, we still won't have prevented domestic and family violence. And people who are sort of really opting for that gender equality approach, they talk in language like it will take generations to change this. I just, look, in the end, maybe history will bear it out that they were right and I was wrong. Um, um, And it's not that they are not working at the coalface every day to try to change things day by day. I do not want to sort of uh, situate an an us and them sort of situation. Uh, But I do want to take issue with the idea that this will take generations to change and that we should be okay with that. Um, Because I think if you see the work of people like Tarana Burke in the States, who's behind me too, Stacey Abrams, who just flipped Georgia. Now, I can imagine there were people who thought that would take generations too. But she, as she said so brilliantly in her work, was driven. She was neither pessimistic nor optimistic. She was determined. And she flipped that state with an enormous network of people who worked nonstop to do that. What I sort of feel like in Australia is that it's too easy to say that this is a slowly, slowly thing that we try to sort of reform um, through these prevention efforts, instead of going, how can we prevent the next generation of children growing up in these households, and potentially a a good proportion of them repeating these same behaviours or becoming victim to them. because prevention starts now. unless we can intervene in the violence now, no amount of gender equality work is going to change the education that kids get in their own family home. And at the moment, we've got estimates that suggest that possibly as many as one in four children are growing up in an abusive household. One in four women will experience intimate partner violence um, you know after the age of 16. This is a gigantic, gigantic you know issue. And what we've not been able to quantify is how many men are perpetrating it. But we can assume from those numbers that there's at least hundreds of thousands. So what are we doing with these guys? Because it's not just about how do we, you know, stop young boys from turning into perpetrators. That's very, very important work. But it's also about how do we stop this guy who's just victimized this person and, and this these kids from moving on from that relationship and doing it again? Um and that's what I don't think there's been nearly enough attention to. I was chatting to some people in Central Australia um, just before coming on the line with you, and, um, and they said there are two men's behaviour change programs in the whole of the Northern Territory. Now, the incarceration rate for Aboriginal men for domestic violence and women is sky high. The incarceration rate for Aboriginal men generally is the highest in the world. Um, so how is it that we've only got two programs... Um, aimed at helping these men reintegrate. Um, these are the things that I really want there to be much more um, focus on. Um, and how do we change our systems so that they better respond, not just to protect victims, but to stop perpetrators from continuing to, you know, project whatever harm they've experienced or just harm other people.
1: Yeah, and one of the things I think is uh, really important about your book is its focus on understanding perpetrators. And uh, you justify this by saying that it would be as strange to ignore perpetrators as it would be to try and understand cancer while not trying to understand uh, how cancerous cells work. But I want to ask you about a particular aspect of uh, of perpetrators, which is the role of pornography. Uh, normally we uh, we discuss this with a bit of a snigger and a, and a dism- dismissive laugh. Uh, but I was really... Uh, Uh, clued into the issue through an interview I did with Marie Crabb on the podcast a couple of years ago, where she talked about the shocking degree of violence in modern internet pornography. Uh, and it struck me there's a bit of an analogy with marijuana, where we often say, you know, today's stuff's 10 times stronger than the 1960s marijuana. Uh, and the same seems to be true of porn, which is much more violent, much more domineering than uh, the, uh, the the girly mags of uh, of a generation back. What role do you think um, internet violent internet pornography is playing in, uh, in domestic abuse?
0: Well, look, you only have to talk to young women particularly um who are have are going into their first dating relationships or or people who are you know using online dating and um and and women who've like told me just again and again the sorts of expectations that are put on them that to my ears are totally foreign you know like i met my husband I was 23 so I've been in this relationship for 15 years um, I dabbled in internet dating but I do not have any clue of what it's like out there aside from what I get told and and what these women say is the expectation that they will um, that they'll just be happy with anal sex on the first date you know that tells you something about how cultural expectations around sex are changing you know um, if you want to have anal sex go ahead great. But to expect that of women, and then in many cases, as they say, to, that they feel shamed if they don't want to, um, and that you know, I think especially in young men, not not a great deal of care going into how delicate something like that is. Um, it's that that's p- perhaps the most top line um, evidence for how porn has shifted sexual norms, and I think that the problem is is not that people watch videos. Of, of people having sex or whatever, it's that porn is, is operating now on a late-stage capitalism model, which is more and more intensity um, to keep people hooked. And you see that, um, you know, anyone who's listened to Rabbit Hole, um, which talks about the YouTube algorithms that take people from moderate content down to, you know, through to these anti-feminist men's um, sort of people spouting all sorts of horrific misogynistic material through to um, people like QAnon, conspiracy theories. You know, there's this, there's the model basically is that you need something a bit more, a bit more extreme, a bit more extreme to keep people on the hook. It's an addiction model um, or a a compulsion model. And, And if you have guys who are watching porn from the time that they're, let's say, average age 13, but in a lot of boys, even younger, that they first start watching it, if that starts to become their first idea of porn, of, of sex, it's what is framing their whole fantasy life. So I have, you know, my partner's a psychotherapist and um, he sees a lot of guys who just cannot fantasise outside of a, a, a porn context. And the problem that we have is that this porn, as Marie I'm sure was explicit about, is that not all of it is terrible. Not all of it is degrading. Some of it is just exciting, but there is a lot of it that absolutely plays on the erotic appeal of degradation. And the degradation is pretty much one way, except if you consider that you know a man just being represented by a penis is also quite degrading for men. Um, but in terms of the choking, the gagging, all of this is not only portrayed as something, um, as it portrayed regularly and violently, but it's portrayed as something that women like and that they're grateful for and that they are turned on by. So if your whole sexual development is, is informed by watching these types of videos, how would you have a clear sense of what you should do with your intimate partner. When there's so little at the moment, that's interrupting that in terms of programs in schools. There are some, there are some great ones. I know Marie runs some. Um, there are some great ones going around, but we still, as you say, we still talk about porn with a bit of a snigger. There's also the complex topic of how do you talk about porn without demonizing sex workers? Um, I think feminism has found it very hard to, um, to find a clear line on porn because of that reason um, and we just for something that is one of the most prevalent influences on most humans on the planet who have access to the internet or most men particularly um, the fact that we are not talking about this all the time is um, I think we'll look back on and see as a relic of the past um, in a few years, much like we do when we look back on sexual harassment being sort of like um, laughed about or sniggered about. Um, you know, this is a conversation that is well overdue. It's coming and it's going to be pretty confronting when it really explodes. Um, but this generation of boys and girls are, are probably going to be the ones um, to really start it. Why is it the wrong question to ask of
1: victim survivors of uh, domestic abuse, why doesn't she leave?
0: Well, I'm really glad you asked me that because I think that's a perfectly fine question. The wrong question really is um, why doesn't she just leave? (laughs) And the wrong question is if you frame that rhetorically and expect a victim-blaming response or already have a victim-blaming response in your head saying that, like, surely she could have if she really wanted to. Now, when you ask, why doesn't she leave? Well, there's some really interesting answers to that question. And if you're really open to understanding it, it will tell you a lot about what domestic abuse is and how it operates, how you know women make certain rationalisations um, to live with the abuse, to survive it um, such that it becomes invisible to themselves, how the very system, if they are experiencing coercive control, makes itself invisible, that is the nature of the system. Um, it is supposed to be invisible, that's how it works, and that's how it is so successful um, in changing their behaviors. Um, I think that when you ask, why doesn't she leave? We start also talking about what happens when she leaves? Well, obviously for a lot of these um, women, it is the highest um, risk period and, and we'll see them facing the highest risk of homicide. Um, you see what happens when they go to the family law courts and that women who, particularly women, but also some men who will be advised by child protection, that they must act protectively towards their children and um, prevent those kids from being around the person who's using violence. Um, we'll go to the family court and be told exactly the opposite, which is you need to find a way to facilitate a relationship between this person and your kids. And um, and so protective parents who think that they are going to go to the system for protection and that that system will see the harms that have been done to their kids and protect their kids are finding too often that that is not the case. And in fact, they end up being painted as the bad guy because they are being too protective and they are projecting that anxiety onto the kids. And that, that is the reason why the kids don't want to see the alleged abusive parent. And I see that happen in family law cases um, all the time. I was in the family law courts earlier this week and saw the same thing playing out. It is the projection of the anxiety of the mother that has caused the children to make allegations of sexual abuse, even though they've made those allegations to several different people, have written them down explicitly. Um, they're just doing it because they think that the mother wants, that's what she wants to hear. Um, it's a really, really twisted and regressive lens that the family law system has on abuse. Um, it essentially sees domestic violence as historical, um, a- aside from a few exceptional circumstances, and um, and basically um, implores, particularly the mother, to get over it um, and to be fine with her children um, spending supervised or unsupervised time um, with their other parents, someone who they may have spent years trying to protect their kids from, someone who, you know, those kids may be terrified of. And the, the series that um, I'm putting to air with SBS in May, you know, there's a, there's a woman talking about the fact that her kids will kick and scream and punch holes in walls, refusing to go to their ordered contact visits with their father, and she has no choice but to force them to go into the car and to see someone they're terrified of because the court has ordered them to do it. And if she refuses, then she could be up on contravention orders and she can be, you know, essentially may end up in a situation where she loses custody altogether. So the protective thing for that mother to do is to force her children to see someone who terrifies them, who may be abusing them. Um, And in that moment, that mother is damaging the attachment bond with her own kids because what kids need more than anything else from the person that they are primarily attached to is safety and security. And because the courts make these orders, those women cannot make, give, give that promise to their kids. They cannot protect them.
1: Your book is uh, incredibly brutal in parts. You've got stories of strangulation, of the rape of children... Some of the men in your book are, are vicious psychopaths, and you've spoken about the uh, strain that that placed on your own marriage, uh, which I can certainly, you know, understand, given that I found myself being angry at men and men in general you know, while uh, while reading uh, reading your book how How do you write a book about like this without it eating away at you and and how what would you do differently if you were starting this project again uh, and and concerned about looking after your mental well being through it
0: you know I think it 's a very this book was very much a time and a place thing for me um, and there was something driving me that is still probably yet to be fully explained in my therapy sessions. Um, but um, um, I um, I don't know if I could have taken a different approach to it. If I'm writing now, <laughs> um, I am trying to put much more effort into self-care and into being in my body and not just in my head. I'm also trying to take less responsibility for the safety of every individual person who I speak to or who I interview um and and that the work must carry their safety and protection I'm I'm trying to be have less hubris essentially um and but you know part of the reason and this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning you know when you really want to produce something that speaks to people viscerally um and pushes past old barriers and paradigms you have to dig very deep. And that is a very uncomfortable process. And that self excavation, et cetera, it's very hard to just enjoy a normal social life and go about your business while you are confronting some of the darkest issues we have in our society, but also the darkest parts of yourself. Um, so could I write this book in a different way? Uh, maybe, and certainly once I had my baby, um, you know, when I had my little girl, there was no choice but to jump out of that space and be in a much more transcendent and, you know, sometimes, you know, often very tiring space, but one that was not about domestic violence whatsoever. And I think I became a better and clearer writer once that transition happened about midway through the book. Um, But uh, aside from something that would force me to care for, well, someone else, but also to just be in some other headspace, I would not have chosen that. Because I was so obsessed that every minute I spent doing something else was a minute I wouldn't have time to read another paper or talk to another person and get just that little bit more nuance in the writing. You know, there were some conversations I had with survivors where I'd interview them for an hour and all that would really come from it was just a slight adjustment to one sentence, but it was an important one. You know, and that happened all through the book and, and I think that the reason why it feels seminal to people, the reason why it has moved people in the way it has, is because the amount of care and work that went into it was unusual. Um and I did put aside everything else in my life to make this. Um and I I would just never do that in that way again because I I can't. I'm too old now. <laughs> Jess, uh, let me
1: conclude with a couple of uh, quick questions. Uh, what adva- advice would you give to your teenage
0: self? Hmm. Um, to not be so hard on yourself. That's the advice I give to myself now. Um, <laughs> I guess the advice I'd give to my teenage self would be, yeah, mostly just to care for yourself, you know, just be compassionate for yourself. Don't let your internal critic take over like you're doing your best. Well, that's my, that's my internal critic saying you're doing your best. I can't even be nice when I'm talking to my teenage self. It's like, you're, you're a good person with like, you know, a lot in front of you. Just don't be too hard on yourself. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's a really vexed thing for me. I I have a very tricky relationship with my younger self, I think, um, because, I still have a very unresolved internal critic and uh, and that's something I'm really learning to get past now. And it's why having kids is so good because it kind of gives you this perspective. Like you see how much just absolute unconditional love you have for this person. And you're like, why don't you have that towards yourself? You know? Um, and I think that's something that, yeah, I, I would not want to, you know, the advice is not so important. It's more just that internal feeling of like, you know, you like, you're not defined by what you achieve, you know it's you're defined by how you are in the world but also how you are to yourself What's something you used to believe, but no longer do Oh my goodness, so much um oh, I had a lot of internalized misogyny i think um i uh I had a lot on board about needing to project masculine traits because i I think I associated those with power. Um, and so a lot of those um, sort of attitudes and behaviours have changed. Um, I, one particular thing that was shocking to me, um, I think, you know, in the family law scenario was that I did believe that women got unfair advantage by, you know, fabricating domestic abuse allegations in the court. Or um, about f- over 40, I think over 40% of Australians believe that. Um, so I was one of that cohort, um, and I felt incredibly guilty about that when I discovered just how little advantage women get when they when they bring up those allegations, and in how in fact it can work against them. Um, but it, I mean, I could go through every page, and someone actually, a reader actually mentioned this that every page it, it looks like you're busting yourself, like you're busting your own misconceptions, and that is true. Like I don't, I don't. Um, bring stone tablets down from the mountain. I'm not bringing you the wisdom. Like I'm literally like confronting all of my worst biases and, and, um, and misperceptions in that book. And that's why I hope it feels relatable because I'm not preaching. I'm, I'm really trying to just present what I've discovered and how wrong I was in so many cases and hope that, that you'll want to and be fascinated enough to understand this better too. When are you most happy? I think I'm most happy when I'm, um, hanging out with my daughter and my partner. Um, like I was most happy yesterday, you know, crawling through a rope tunnel with my three year old and, and her, you know, saying I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And then turning around and just saying, I really love you. And that was just beautiful. Like it's not many other times I can feel that kind of transcendence because I am confronting daily, like so many other people who work in this sector, the really most incredible incredible harms done to people and um and it's very hard to look around even a playground and not just see a number of victim survivors because I get contacted by so many women from so many walks of life um so when i'm sort of just out of that and just in the experience of being with my loved ones it's like yeah that's probably when i feel happiest
1: what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy
0: Therapy. <laughs>
1: How often do you do it? What are the keys to doing therapy well?
0: Uh, well, my partner would say that you've really got to commit to it and do it regularly and he'd say that you dabble. Um, he <laughs> did say that to me the other day. Um, uh, but, yeah, it literally is the thing that creates the space in my head. Um, but when I'm uh, being more responsible, I also do Pilates and I try to go for walks and, you know, that doing that physical work, I think when you're dealing with vicarious trauma – um and you're trying to crunch through very difficult concepts, getting back into your body is kind of number one. I'm just terrible at finding time to do that. But when I do, I feel heaps better. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I, I wish I did. I'm guilty that I don't have many guilty pleasures, but any parent of a three-year-old would say like... Um, Meta guilt. Yeah, I think that probably my guilty pleasure is... um um well it's not quite a pleasure but twitter um you know that's something that i i do um spend quite a bit of time on but also um amaretto amaretto is a guilty pleasure that i engage in you know indulge in every now and then
1: <laughs> and finally jess which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an
0: ethical life huh. i'd say that there are i mean there's so many people but i'd say that Two people in particular is my nonna who was an author but also a campaigner for writers' rights um, and my um, mentor um, the late Mark Colvin. What was it
1: about those two people that uh, that shaped your view what did you learn from your nonna and from mark?
0: I think that you know my nonna you know she engaged me in in political activism pretty early I'd, I'd be you know folding pamphlets with her for um, her work with Penn, um, you know, trying to free people like Ken Sarawiwa, who was a Nigerian poet who was jailed for opposing um, the shell installations in Nigeria and and eventually executed. Um, I think that her clear headedness around ethical boundaries, she's just like from a generation who when they were good were great you know like um and she really had very clear lines around ethical behavior um she was um subtle in the way that she did that um but she really imparted to me what it was to do the right thing and why that was important um and why it was so important for people to understand um what's going on in the world and and um and how to do that well and i think for mark it was that you know, like he didn't always behave perfectly, and sometimes some of our you know best bonding moments were uh, when either he pulled me up on something or I'd pull him up on something you know um so it didn't it wasn't like some perfect like relationship like that but but in that way it was a kind of perfect relationship in that way um in the sense that I felt that we were able to for each other really reinvigorate each other around journalism around the the best practices in that he taught me immeasurable amounts about ethical interviewing about um always centering human stories above ideologies or theories um and just the way that he practiced he was un you know waveringly committed to um to human rights and that's what I think really taught me the fact that this whole idea of like left leftist journalists or whatever it's like journalism has a really clear mandate it's like you go you report from the basic position that human rights should be inalienable and that we we report from the position that we are trying to expose where those human rights are being violated and do what we can to help them be protected um so and that was I think Mark's very clear, level-headed approach to that really helped elevate him above the whole left-right sort of like uh, contentiousness of, of ABC personalities. Um, and he was able to occupy a, quite a rare ground there where he could really say what he thought to a certain extent, but, but never sort of, you know, be partisan um, or ideological. Uh, he was always just going for truth. And an extraordinary
1: mentor from, uh, from all accounts. Uh, certainly you're not the first person who said to talk to me about the influence Mark had on their lives. Uh, Jess Hill, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on The Good Life podcast today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Andrew.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Ginger Gorman, Marie Crabb and Cordelia Fine. We appreciate getting feedback on this podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.